The message is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. Uh, we've been going through this series on 1 Corinthians, all the way from chapter 1, verse 1, up until today, chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. And we're going we're gonna to keep trucking through this, this awesome uh, book, this Word of God. So let me just read this passage first. It's a short one today. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Anybody else hearing feedback in here? Some AV booth, there's some feedback I hear. Um, just to uh, give a little bit of a recap here, and I, and I know I've been giving a recap um, the past several weeks, but uh, I, I think the recap is helpful, especially as we read more and more and more of the scriptures and kind of see how it all comes together. So in, in chapter 8, if you'll remember, uh, Paul addresses this topic of Corinthian believers who wanted to go into pagan temples and participate in their sacrificial worship and eat the food in those settings. So there would be a, um, somebody who was a worshiper of Poseidon would uh, say, hey, I want to give thanks to Poseidon for the great um, you know, catch of fish that we got during this past season. And I want to invite all my friends to come and we're going to offer this animal and sacrifice to Poseidon. And then we are going to eat that animal together. We're going to cook it and eat together. And now there were a lot of Corinthians who were participating in this and they were saying, you know what, what's the big deal? I know that Poseidon is not a real God. I know that there's no God except the God of the Bible, except the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I know that these other gods are not real. So it's not a big deal if I just go and I participate there because I get a free meal. I get to hang out with my friends. Social life, much of social life revolved around these uh, cultic sacrifices. When people in Corinth, when they celebrated something, oftentimes they would do it at the temple. So a lot of Corinthians were kind of like, I still want to go to this. I want to eat. I want to hang out with my friends. And this is a big part of my social life. And in chapter 8, Paul, Paul said, no, don't do this. Because there are some Christians, brothers and sisters, who may be weaker in their understanding of idolatry because their lives were so deeply intertwined with idolatry, which was everywhere in Corinth and in the Greco-Roman world, that when they see you doing this, Maybe they, they thought, oh, I shouldn't do this anymore. But when they see you doing it, they go, oh, well, Bob's in there. Bob's a solid Christian. So I guess it's okay for me to go into the temple and participate in this. And they go and they do it. 
but because their hearts were so intertwined with idolatry in their past, they just can't separate it out from what they're doing there. They can't separate out the idolatry from the meal and they end up in idolatry. They end up in some way in their heart worshiping Poseidon or Aphrodite or Bacchus or whatever God may be. So Paul says, don't do that for the sake of your brothers and sisters. Now, in chapter 9, he goes on and he says, you know, look, let me give you an example from my own life. It's not about your rights. Like, hey, it's okay to eat in the temple. It's not my problem that they, they don't understand that there's no other God. Don't look to me. I ain't no role model, right? Paul says, no. In chapter 9, he tells the people, look, our rights are not that important for the sake of the gospel. I am entitled to financial support because I, I, I started the Corinthian church. I'm an apostle. But for the sake of not stumbling any of you, because there are people here who peddle the gospel of God for profit, I'm not going to take any financial support from you. Other churches are going to support me just so you won't get the wrong idea about the gospel. He laid down his right to financial support. He says, hey, look, look at my example. It's not about my rights. It's not about your right to eat that food. It's not about my rights to financial support. It's about the gospel, whatever helps the gospel to go forward. Then last week in chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, things get a little interesting. Paul says, look at the example of the Israelites from the Old Testament, okay? You Corinthians, you think you can be in the temple, you can be in the setting of, of worshiping Poseidon or Aphrodite and nothing's going to happen to you. Why? Because you eat communion, because you have communion that we've partaken, because you've been baptized, maybe because you have spiritual experiences like speaking in tongues or prophecy or things like that. No, the Israelites in the Old Testament, they came through the Red Sea. That was like a type of baptism for them. They ate manna in the wilderness. That was like a type of communion for them. But they all died out in the wilderness. Do not be brazen and test the Lord and sit in that temple and think that nothing is going to happen to you. No, flee idolatry. God will help you to overcome every temptation in your life, but you can't just sit there in it. Flee the idolatry. Now, so if you're, maybe, maybe last week when you heard this message, you were, you were starting to think, oh, okay. It, it sounds like Paul's kind of saying, you know, this, this eating of this meat, going to these pagan temples, that there's something actually, it might not just be about not stumbling my brother or sister, but Paul seems real adamant about just getting out of that place. Don't be there. Well, if you were thinking that, you were right. <laughs> you were right. Because in today's passage, Paul gets down to, um, he talks about how going and participating in these meals is actually not just a matter of your brother or sister seeing that and maybe following your example and then them falling because they used to commit idol idolatry. There's actually something inherently wrong about this. Okay, so if you sensed that last week, you're right. This week in this passage, Paul tells the Corinthians what was inherently, what is inherently wrong with going to these um, cultic sacrifices at all. And what, what is that? So here he uses the example of Christian communion. In verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
What is Paul talking about there? Why is he using communion as an example? Communion is the, the Christian sacrificial meal, so to speak. Not because we come together and on Sundays we, uh, I, you know, I bring a bull out and we sacrifice that we have a huge barbecue on the patio and then we all eat together and we worship the Lord. Not because of that, but because we remember that all of the sacrifices pointed towards the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He was the, the, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the Lamb of God. He was the sacrifice that all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to. And when we come together and we take communion, which we do every other month, when we eat the bread, when we drink the cup, it reminds us that Christ was sacrificed for us. And we believe that it is a spiritual meal and that something is taking place when we eat that communion, when we drink that cup. The word participation here might be familiar. If you, even if you read it in the Greek, it's from the word koinonia. Some of you, if you're Christians, you might have gone to a, something called a koinonia fellowship in college or a church called Koinonia. Anybody here ever part of something called Koinonia? Raise your hand. Okay, okay, like 10 of you or so. That means fellowship. That means this type of intimacy and connection, this type of communion. Now, not to go really deep into this, but I think it's, it's good for us to know, there are various views of what takes place in communion. I'm just going to go over this real, real fast, just so you know, so you can so you, so you can say, well, you know, my pastor told me about this, not like he never told me about it. Now, the Roman Catholics, when they view communion, they view it, they call it transubstantiation, or that's the word that's come to be known. So in the Roman Catholic Church, when you take of the bread and the cup, they believe that the bread and the cup and the, and the, the grape juice or the wine actually become the body and the blood of Christ. Actually become it. Not that it like, you know, no, it's still bread and it's still wine, but it is actually the body and the, the, body and the blood of Jesus. That, that's their belief. Martin Luther said, no, that doesn't sound right. So he came up with consubstantiation, which means that, uh, no, it's still bread and still wine, but Jesus is really there too. Somehow it's like both of those. So the illustration that is imperfectly used sometimes would be like a sponge filled with water. It's like still a sponge, but it's got tons of water in it. Like, you know, that's kind of the, the explanation, illustration that's used sometimes. And then Zwingli, one of the reformers during the, the Protestant Reformation, had the memorialist view, which says that, no, 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 this doesn't become, there's nothing going on here. It's just bread and wine, just meant to remind us of what Jesus did, purely symbolic in nature. And then there was Calvin, who um, his view, maybe we call it the special presence view, which said that, no, it's, it's um, we don't know how, it's, it's bread and it's wine, it's not the literal body and blood of Christ, but in some way, Jesus is present there in some spiritual, supernatural way. And he really is there. And when we take the communion, it, it nourishes us. It strengthens us. It, it blesses us and encourages us. It does something spiritual, which is the view that, that I hold. Um, the bottom line is that something spiritual is taking place. So when Paul talks about communion here, he's saying 
something spiritual is taking place when we take the communion. Now, why does he use that illustration? Because he's telling the Corinthians, when you go into that temple and you eat that food, something spiritual is taking place. He says in verse 18, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? You know, when you, when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at Leviticus, um, the sacrifices that people brought to God, they weren't allowed to eat. They were like burned up as an offering to God, or they were um, given partially to the priests or to Levites so, to support them so that they would have food. There was one offering, though, that the people were allowed to eat, and we call that the fellowship offering or the peace offering. And, and what you did was when you brought that offering to the temple, the priests would sacrifice it, they would take part of it for the Lord, part of it for the priest, and then they would give part of it to you. And you were to go into one of the rooms in the temple and eat it there, most likely with other friends of yours, because you can't eat that whole half a cow yourself, right? You invite other people, and you eat there in the temple, in the presence of God. Well, God, can I, can I get a doggy bag and just take this home? You know, like, wouldn't that be easier? No, you eat it in the temple. Why? Because you're eating with God. God is with you in that meal. It's a fellowship meal. God is fellowshipping with you. God is enjoying communion with you. You're to eat with the Lord. God is the host of that meal. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, when you go, look, just like, just like when we partake of communion, something spiritual is taking place. There is a spiritual fellowship taking place. There is a koinonia. There is something happening there. When you go into the temple of Aphrodite or Bacchus or Poseidon, when you eat that food, even though you don't believe that those gods are real, there is something spiritual taking place. So don't go there. Don't participate in this. This is why he says, flee, flee from idolatry. Now, Paul, he, he makes it clear in verse 19. Again, he repeats this, as we saw earlier in, in chapter 8. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. So he just repeats himself here. He wants to make sure everybody understands, no, Poseidon's not real. <laughs> Aphrodite's not real. Don't think that because I'm saying that something spiritual is going on here, that there are other gods aside from the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the God, the God um, of the gospel. There is no other God. No, no, no. Food offered to those idols is nothing. Those idols are nothing. Let me repeat that and make sure you understand that. Those are not real gods. But, what does he say? He said, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup, again, here the communion language, the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't have communion in the church and participate in the spiritual fellowship with the Lord. The Lord's presence is there in some way. There's some type of spiritual exchange taking place when you eat and when you drink. And then you go into the temple of Aphrodite and you eat and you drink because something spiritual is happening there as well. Don't do that. Now, now he says, it's not because Aphrodite is real or Poseidon is real, but do you know what is real? Demons. That's what Paul is saying here. 
Paul says, look, those gods are not real. But you know what is real? The spiritual reality. There is something taking place behind the scenes. There is something spiritual happening. And it's not the truth of Greek mythology or whatever religious system you want to look at, but there are demons and evil spiritual powers in this world at work. And Corinthians, you don't even realize it, but it is the demonic that is there hosting this meal in the other temple. Now, when we hear about demons, I don't know how, about how that makes you feel. Maybe some of you may feel like, oh boy, we're getting real, real wild here, real, real spiritual here, real kind of crazy here. Do you, do you believe that about demons? And gosh, you know, we're, we're modern scientific people. Do you really believe in like these, you know, pitchforks and horns and all that kind of, come on, come on. We're, we're educated, scientific, rational people. Now here's the thing, with, with the demonic we tend to go towards two extremes. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a really, really amazing book called The Screwtape Letters. Maybe you read it. And uh, C.S. Lewis, he wrote the, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, and you know, really a uh, famous author. He wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. And basically, it was this fictional account of an older demon mentoring a younger demon in how to get the enemy, which are Christians and, and God, how to get... Christians to reject God and walk away and to be willing to worship anything else but God. So C.S. Lewis is kind of, kind, of, kind of difficult, right? He said it was the, the most uh, um, uh, difficult book, the most unenjoyable book he ever wrote because he had to kind of get into this place of such darkness and despair. But he said this in the preface of the book. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The materialist being the person who says there is no such thing as that, demons and that spiritual realm, and the magician who gets too into it. Either one is an extreme that we should avoid. It, sometimes people get too into the demonic. Um, this is why I don't watch horror movies. I don't watch horror movies. I, I'm a Christian. I got to cast out demons. I got to deal with that in my life. I don't want to give them an advantage. I don't want to be scared out of my mind in any of those situations. I don't watch horror movies. Um, I don't want to have this fear within me. Sometimes we get too much into it in, in demonology. Getting into the, some people get into the names of demons and they think, oh, legion, if I can understand the names of demons, I can control demons and things like that. And there's an unhealthy level of interest in the demonic. But oftentimes it's the other side where we think that they don't exist. It's like that line that Kevin Spacey said in The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Something that he would be very, very happy um, if many people believed. I want to read to you one excerpt actually from uh, the Screwtape Letters. This is not from the preface, but this is actually in the voice of the mentor demon. And I think it's just so interesting. It says this, it's an extended excerpt. And he says, my dear Wormwood, Wormwood was the name of his nephew, younger uh, apprentice demon. 
I wonder, you sh I should change my voice for this, but I don't want to scare anybody here, so. <laughs> I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient, the patient being the Christian, in ignorance about your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. The high command is the devil. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When human beings disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics, at least not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due course how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is, in effect, a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to the belief in the enemy. The quote-unquote life force, the worship of sex, and some aspects of psychoanalysis here may prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. In the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. Um, C.S. maybe, come on back, Clive. <laughs> it got deep into there. But um, I think what, what he is saying here is so, is so real as well. And I think it's especially the tendency of, of Western culture, Western sensibilities, at least it's somebody for me who's grown up in this Western culture, to actually think that this type of thing, the demonic or the spiritual realm in this way, is um, not really something to be taken seriously. You know, I, I, was, I was listening to some sermons on 1 Corinthians chapter 10 on these verses I'm talking about today. And what I found in the multiple sermons I listened to is that when they talk about the idolatry, it tends to go back to, oh, the idolatry of money. Oh, the idolatry of your career. The idolatry of people think about you. And Yes, that is true, but in this passage, that's a secondary application. The idolatry here, Paul's concern is the spiritual influence of the demonic realm in certain situations that you put yourself in. And we cannot detach ourselves exegetically from what Paul is saying here, lest we fall into that same mistake that um, Uncle Screwtape uh, advised his nephew Wormwood to use against people. But the Bible is very clear that the spiritual realm, the realm of the demonic, is very, very real. Look, it, it, I'll give you a few verses here. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 32, it says, they, the Israelites, stirred him to jealousy, God. They stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, 
with abominations. They provoked them to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Did the Israelites think that they were sacrificing to demons? No, they're like, oh, I'm kind of tempted to sacrifice to Baal or Chemosh or the God of fertility, the God of rain, the God of the harvest, so I can get some better harvest, so that I can have a child, whatever it might be. They didn't know that they were sacrificing to demons. In the Psalms, it says, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Notice the words, the shifting. Idols, demons, back to idols. The Israelites thought that they were sacrificing their children, which was an abomination to God in the first place, but they thought they were doing it to another God for the sake of favor from that God, but they were actually sacrificing to demons behind the scenes. Look at other crazy stuff that happens in the Bible. In chapter 10, Daniel prayed 21 days ago to God, and the angel Gabriel came to Daniel and said, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. This is a crazy verse, a crazy passage. What is, what is Gabriel? The angel Gabriel says, hey, Daniel, I want you to know that when you prayed 21 days ago, God heard you. God heard you. There was no delay in God hearing you. I was sent to come to you, but actually I got caught up because I was in this spiritual battle with the prince of the kingdom of Persia, which is not a physical person. This, these are evil spiritual forces, and I needed help. And the archangel, archangel Michael came and helped me and fought against the prince of Persia, and then I was able to come here to you to deliver this message. That's crazy, man. <laughs> There's stuff going on in the spiritual realm that we do not see, but is real. A spiritual battle between angels and demons that affect this world that we are in, they're very much real. And in the Gospels, of course, over and over again, you see Jesus healing. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Jesus cast out, you know, there are three they say three major signs of the kingdom of God through the ministry of Jesus. The preaching of the word of God, the healing of the sick, and the casting out of demons to prove that the kingdom of God was here among the people, had come into the world through Jesus Christ. The casting out of demons. And he told his disciples to go and cast out demons. And that was a part of their ministry. And in the times of the epistles, after Jesus as well. Paul says it so well in Ephesians 6 about the big picture that we're in. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's saying this is not just a physical battle. That's not what Christian life is. It's not just a physical battle against people, against the systems of this world, but there is a spiritual battle taking place against the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil. So brothers and sisters, what's Paul saying? He's saying to the Corinthians, to those who are going into the temple and eating that food and hanging out there, there were two things that the Corinthians were not aware of. The first is that they were not aware of the presence of demons at the pagan cultic sacrifices. 
They knew Poseidon wasn't there, but they did not realize that demons were there. They did not realize that demons were the ones hosting this meal that they were participating in. It, it, it doesn't matter if you, if you know that, you know, Poseidon's not real. You don't want to go to dinner at the demon's house, right? You just don't want to do that. They were not aware that the presence of the demons were there. Secondly, they were not aware of the power of the demons at these pagan cultic sacrifices. This is why Paul's saying, when you eat there, you are having that word participants in verse 20. It's the same root word as before, koinonia. Do you want koinonia with demons, Paul's saying? You, you went to, in college, Koinonia Christian Fellowship. We love Koinonia. Do you want Koinonia with demons? Paul's saying no, but that's what happens. There is something, a participation, a spiritual influence, an exchange that is taking place in this event. Do not overlook this. Flee it. Flee from this idolatry. It's not just about your younger brother and sister following your example, but this is bad for you. Corinthians know about the present. You must know that the demons are present and you must know that although they are not more powerful than God, they're nothing compared to God, they do have a power as well. They have an influence there. So in verse 22, he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul says God is a jealous God and he will not have his bride, the church, participating and fellowshipping with false gods and with demons. He won't have that. He is a jealous God. God is, God is you know, we hear that, we say, oh, you know, God's jealous? That's kind of beneath God, isn't it? I don't know if I like a God who's jealous. No, God has every right to be jealous because he made us. Because he is the creator, because we are his bride, he has every right to be jealous for us if we put ourselves in these situations where we are experiencing spiritual influence from other people and other things. If, if I see my wife, Christine, with another man, I have every right to be jealous. I should be jealous. If I said, ah, you know, what's the big deal? There's something wrong with that. If she saw me with another woman, she should be jealous because I'm in covenant with her. She is my wife. And we are in covenant with God. We are the bride of Christ. Just as in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, you cannot take the members of the body of Christ and unite them with a prostitute because the body of Christ is a temple of God. We cannot unite God with a prostitute. At the same time as well, we cannot go into these temples and find ourselves fellowshipping with demons when we are to fellowship with God. Well, that's a lot here, but this is what Paul is saying. There is a reality here to this spiritual realm. Let me give a few applications here to, to close us. Um, what does this mean for us? What, what do we do about this so that it doesn't just become, oh, demons, okay. If somebody invites me to the temple of Baal, Ulysses, I won't go. Got it. Got it. I won't, you know, got an invitation to the temple of Baal for dinner and dancing and a party and maybe some weird stuff afterwards and stuff. What did the Ulysses say? Don't go. Okay, got it. That is the application of this passage to my life. I would say no, it's, it's, more, it's more than that. It's more than that. And, and, I, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because I think 
this, this can be, you know, we live in a different time, right? In, in modern-day America, um, especially if, you know, in a country with a Judeo-Christian background, we may not experience the same type of, th- type of thing as the Corinthians did back then, right? So what does this mean for us? Let me give you a few applications. I have four, four or five, four applications here. The first is this. Make every effort to be here when we have communion. Don't miss communion. We have communion twice, uh, every two months. We had one just last week. I kind of wish it fell on today, almost, right? Um, We'll have another one, what, in the beginning of uh, June. Make every effort to be here for communion. Because you may, if you have a memorialist memorialist view like Zwingli, you may say, oh, you know, it's okay. What's the big deal? I could just say to myself, Christ died for my sins. He shed his blood. His body was broken for me. Okay, I remember you, Jesus, even if I'm not here for communion. Well, if you have that view, maybe. Bible still says we should take communion, right? Remember the Lord together. But if you have a spiritual presence view, which I do, I believe something happens. And and I believe based on what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, something does happen. Something takes place. Otherwise, this argument about being in the presence of the demons would not really work. Something happens when we take communion. So do your best not to miss it. Do your best to schedule your your business trips, your vacations or whatnot, even to to be able to be here when we have communion and come with the heart that says and approaches communion with faith. Lord, I, I believe that there is something here as I remember you in the body and the blood, that there is something here that really nourishes me, blesses me, that there's some type of intimacy and fellowship and communion taking place here you are hosting this meal, and Lord, I need that touch of the Holy Spirit in my life. I would say let's be a church that really values communion. Second application is this, um, awareness, awareness of the spiritual realm, and perhaps even of spiritual practices or things that may touch upon your own life. That, that might be there. When I was really young in elementary school, every once in a while, my parents would go out to the, uh, we lived on the second floor and we had a patio in the back, a wooden patio, and we would go out there with a wok. You know, I grew up eating Chinese food and they'd bring a wok out there and then they would bring all this, it looked like cash to me, wads of money. And then they would light a fire and put it on the wok and then they would start throwing cash in there and burning it and saying it was for, you know, our ancestors and stuff. I was like, Man, we rich. Wow. We, we must be rolling in it, man. To, to burn money? That's like toilet paper in our home or something, right? Are we rich or something? I didn't fully understand what was going on, but now I understand that, you know, we were burning money in, in this belief that this money would go towards our ancestors in the afterlife. And, and you know, this is a, a spiritual worldview that I was participating in as I threw cash and stuff in there. And I would say, you know, that's something that we should really consider. I would actually argue that it's something that we should not participate in because it involves a spiritual worldview. I I might have shared, I shared this before in the past, but one time uh, um, when we were pregnant, when Christine was pregnant with, uh, we, can we say that, right? We were pregnant, like I'm claiming too much credit there. Christine was pregnant with our first child, Audrey, and uh, her uncle passed away. We were in New York, and uh, we, you know, they were having his funeral, and it was um, it was a, a, a Buddhist ceremony, 
And uh, they forbade Christine from going because they thought that it would be bad for the pregnancy to be near death, somebody who, who died. And they just forbade her from going. That's fine. So I went to represent the family. And I was like, okay, I'm going to show respect for her uncle to represent Christine as a family to go and participate and to, you know, um, respect her uncle. And, and everything's fine and just participating in, you know, there and watching and listening to eulogies. And it was a Buddhist ceremony. But then at one point during the ceremony, they said, now we're going to do something and we're going to ask you all to stand up and we're going to hit this gong three times. And when we hit it the third time, we want everybody to begin bowing to this Buddhist deity. And, and at that point, I was like, uh-oh. Okay, things just got real. I'm, like, I, I'm coming here to respect her uncle. I, I, I love her family. You know, they don't want her to come. That's totally fine. It's not a big deal. I'm coming. But this is a problem. This is a problem. Now, somebody may say, oh, what's the big deal? Just bow. Just go ahead and bow. But not according to 1 Corinthians 10. I think there's an issue here. So I was like, I stood up with everybody. And then, but I was like sweating. I was like, what do I, what do, I do? What do I do? I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to show like disrespect or whatever. But they're, they're like, we're going to bang this gong. And I was like, oh man, what do I do? Do I bow or whatever? And then they banged the gong. One, bong. Two, bong. And third time, bong. Everybody started bowing around me. Atheists. It doesn't matter who they were. They started bowing. And I was like, no, man, I'm not going to do it. I stood there straight as a board like this. And all these people were going down around me. I just, I stood there like this. And, and um, that, that was my conviction. That was my conviction. And I feel like it holds water based on 1 Corinthians 10. I do want to respect her family and, and do what I can to be a good son-in-law. But there's certain points where I have to draw the line. And, you know, just like Paul would have said to Corinthians, hey, you know, maybe your friend will be upset that you're not coming to celebrate the birth of his new daughter at the temple of Aphrodite, but don't go. You can still be a friend. You can still say, I love you. I care about you. I'll be a good neighbor to you. I, it's great that you had a daughter, but I can't go to that, right? And, and I think that in our lives, at times, we have to be, that, that may come up. Like, you know, even when you, when you travel, when you go on vacation, a lot of times, what do you do when you go on vacation in another country or someplace, right? You go visit the... The, the ancient temples or the shrines, right? Like, it, that's cool. History, archaeology, I mean, that's totally fine if you want to do that. I've done plenty of that. I do do that. But just, I would just say, be careful about, like, jumping into the experience if it's offered to you. Like, oh, here, pay a little money, take this and go offer it to that God over there. Or, this is what everybody does when they come here to participate in this religion. I would just, uh, you know, like, think. Think through that for a moment. Are you participating in something that, it may look, look harmless, it's on the brochure, everybody from the tour bus goes and, and does it, but is there something more going on there? Look, um, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, God said this in the, in the Old Testament times to uh, the Israelites. He said, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Check, got that, won't do that. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. 
For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So Paul, what do people always want? They want to be able to tell the future. They want to know what's going to come. And there are a lot of different practices and things that people did. God said, no, don't do that. And then, you know, in the Bible, actually, a lot of translators split this out into the next paragraph. But the next verse says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses is talking, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Not listening to fortune tellers and the diviners. Listening to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. Um, in Acts chapter 16 in the New Testament, look at this. Paul, said, this is an account of Paul. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the, what? The spirit. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very, came out that very hour. What's going on here? What seemed like, oh, this girl can tell the future. Fortune telling, divination. What, she's like a psychic or something. What does Acts reveal? No, it's a spirit. It's an evil spirit at work within her. Fooling people into thinking that there is this spiritual reality where we can tell the future and all these different things, but there are demonic forces at play. And Paul cast that out. So I would say, brothers and sisters, I would be careful of divination of this spiritual realm. Tarot cards, I heard tarot cards are making a comeback. Tarot cards, I know it used to be just a game, like playing cards, but nowadays tarot cards and you know throughout the past few hundred years as well it's a form of divination trying to understand the future through some type of spiritual system going to see psychics if any of you go to psychics um horoscopes that are based upon you know supposedly when you were born and where the sun and the, the stars were in alignment it is a metaphysical system that is not grounded in scripture that you're using to try to predict the future or divine the future in, in some way. I would say even, you know, like we, we need to think about things like feng shui, right? In, in, in modern society. Feng shui, like where you put your bed and where you put the door of the house and stuff like that. And like, you know, I mean, hey, if feng shui says it's good to put your couch there and you look and you say, I think that's a good spot for the couch. That's fine. Like, I don't, I don't really care. Not a big deal. It happens to work out that way. But be careful, I would say, about getting deep into the system because it is built around a system that says there is a perfect spot for placing things in which it is aligned with the energy of the universe, right? That's a metaphysical system behind that that I would not just discount as something that is, ah, oh, it's, just, it's just fun and games or it's just interior design, and no big deal. I would be careful about that. Um, even, here's a touchy one, right? I won't throw it out there. Even yoga. Yoga. Watch out, okay? I know you're like, oh no, don't go there, Pastor Ulysses. Yoga. It's like, you know, listen, listen. You, you take this how you want to take it, right? 
I just want you to think about it. That's all. Yoga means union. That's what it means, right? It is based in Hindu philosophy. It's about uniting your transitory self with the infinite Brahman. It is a form of pantheism, becoming one with the universe, right? And the breathing, the physical posture exercises, it is meant to be able to kind of still you and to break down the physical barriers so that you can move towards a place of enlightenment. Okay. Now, again, you, you know, you, you could do without what you will. Like, I, I feel like somebody needs to start the Christian stretching movement, right? So I'm down with stretching. I'm 45. Stretching is what I need to do more than anything else nowadays. I'm all for stretching, and I, I don't doubt that there are some physical benefits to some of those moves, but but listen, these are things that, you see, this is exactly, it's like screw tape letters, right? When we discount it and say, ah, come on, what's the big deal? That's exactly the strategy. I do believe there is a strategy of the enemy in that way. Now think about this, right? We say, oh, yoga, come on. Ulysses, it's just, it's just physical exercise. It's just social. I like the people there. Think about what the Corinthians probably said to Paul. Oh, come on, Paul, going to the temple? It's just, I'm just there to eat. It's just physical. I know Aphrodite, Bacchus, they're not real. Oh, come on, Paul. It's just social. I'm just hanging out with my friends there. We have a really good time there. I know none of this stuff is real. What did Paul say to them? He said, no, don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. There's a spiritual reality there. So you, you take that. All I'm asking is think about it. Think about it. And we could start a Christian stretching club in our church. And, and that would be, be awesome. Awareness, awareness. Um, third, third, I would say this. Uh, third application, evangelism. Evangelism and the spiritual battle. And, and, and this is something that we need to be aware of as we share the gospel with people, that it is not only or always about how good your argument is, how smart you are, how foolproof your presentation of the gospel is. There is a spiritual thing going on here. We see in 2 Corinthians, the next letter, chapter 4, verse 4, Paul said, in their case, the God of this world, meaning the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is the image of God. Now, there is a very sweeping statement about the spiritual battle that is taking place where the devil is actively trying to keep people blinded from seeing the truth of the glory of God. And I would say this can potentially be exacerbated if there are people in your life who don't know Christ that you want to share the gospel with that may be involved in spiritual practices and finding themselves in the presence and the power of evil spiritual forces. So if that is the case, if there is influence there, then there is something going on there. Particularly, we see this oftentimes in the mission field or places where maybe it, it doesn't have so much of a Judeo-Christian background, where spiritual practices of this sort are much more commonplace. Prayer. We need to pray in the evangelism and in the spiritual battle for those people that God would open up their eyes. Look, we, we are monotheists as Christians. Unashamedly, we're monotheists. 
We believe that there is only the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one God in three persons. Jesus is the only way to the Father. There is no salvation apart from him. But that doesn't mean God is the only spiritual being out there. Um, other world systems, spiritualities, views, um, I don't believe that those gods are real, but I believe that there may be real things behind those beliefs. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you've been sharing the gospel with and you wonder, man, it just feels like, you know, I don't know what it is or there's something that just, it's, it's like so, they, they just don't see. Maybe you need to pray. You need to pray for them. Engage in the spiritual battle. Supernatural things happen. And people who don't know Christ may say to you, no, I've seen, you think, you talk about your Holy Spirit, let me tell you some stuff I've seen. It, maybe they have seen stuff. But I would argue that that is not from something that is good, but oftentimes it is of the enemy. Fourth, fourthly, related point. Let me say this. Um, application, fourth application, final application here. The importance of prayer and fasting. The importance of prayer and fasting. If this is true, if Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 is true, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, then we need to engage in this battle in a spiritual way. We need to pray. We need to fast. We need to be a church that knows how to fight the spiritual battle in a spiritual way with prayer and fasting. Theologian F.F. F. Bruce about Ephesians 6.12 said this, they, being Satan, they will do their best to reclaim the people of Christ for their own dominion. But their attempts will be fruitless if the people of Christ resist them with the spiritual resources which are now placed at their disposal. Only spiritual resources can prevail against them, for they themselves are spiritual forces and forces of evil at that. Brothers and sisters, I hope that this spiritual reality from 1 Corinthians 10 would stir up your heart to say, man, I need to pray. <laughs> I need to fast. What am I doing? What am I doing? If, if you don't have much of a prayer life in your life, you're not fighting the spiritual battle with the resources that God has given you. I'm not talking about just praying a short prayer here and there. I'm not just saying praying for your dinner or praying for your kids before they go to bed, as, as good as that is, but knowing how to toil in prayer, how to labor in prayer, how to prevail in prayer. Just like Paul said later in, in Ephesians 6, the same passage about the armor of God, he said, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul's saying, this is how we fight. We need to know how to pray, how to fast, how to engage in this spiritual realm. Brothers and sisters, um, I want to see victory for you, me, everybody in this church. And, and I'm talking a little bit more generally here now. If you want to run this race as if only one person wins the prize, 
and hear, well done, good and faithful servant in your life. I exhort you, I implore you, learn to pray. Learn to fast because we're in a spiritual battle. Demons are real. We are in the middle of a war. And oftentimes we don't use the weapons that God has given us. If you can, join us on Tuesday night. We pray every week, 7 to 9 o'clock. Join us. If that sounds intimidating to you, 7 to 8, you just pray on your own. You could read the Bible. You could do whatever. Worship team is playing beautiful music in the background. And then from 8 to 9, we pray together over specific things. And we lead the time of prayer. Come for, even if you can only come for 15 minutes. And oh, I don't know if I could pray. Come for 15 minutes. Try it. Take that step to, to pray in your life and engage spiritually. Uh, during the week leading up to Good Friday and Easter, we are going to fast again for that week, like we did in the beginning of this year, so that we can engage in this spiritual realm that God ha has told us about, this reality that we live in. Brothers and sisters, I, I hope that, if nothing else, you will walk away from this day realizing, whoa, it's a spiritual realm, spiritual war out there. I need to pray. I need to pray. Maybe that means having a, a prayer uh, rhythm in your life. Uh, maybe it means praying more together as a family. Maybe it means praying more in your community group or with your friends or Christians. Praying. Letting prayer be a part of your life and seeing the spiritual power that comes to overcome the work of the enemy. Let's pray together. Can we stand? I'm going to invite the worship team up at this time. Um, I know this kind of a, boy, kind of a message. Um, the influence of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have. We partake of the cup and of the bread because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, because we're Christians. And because of that, the Holy Spirit also dwells within us, working powerfully. When we take communion, the Holy Spirit works powerfully within us. We have every resource within us to be able to fight the spiritual battle and to overcome. The enemy has no power compared to God. He has no power to overcome the work of the gospel. But that doesn't mean his power is not real or to be taken lightly. I want to, if we can close our, close our eyes right now, um, one thing I'd like us to do right now is to, as an application for this, and I know this may seem a little strange to some of you, but I want you to think about this message. Are there any situations in your life, any um, temple of a pagan god situations like the Corinthians experience? I just want you to think about that for a moment. And what I, I want us to do is just take a couple of minutes. And if there's anything like that in your life, to, I would encourage you to acknowledge it, to ask for forgiveness or, you know, to repent, to come before the Lord in the spiritual realm and say, God, um, if there's any influence there that I've led into my life, God, I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to break any of that influence in me. I know some people... It may sound really kind of charismatic, but they get into like generational curses and sins and stuff like that. I'm, you know, I don't think the Bible says much about that. So I'm careful not to dive too deep into that. But 
if you feel like there is a lot of spiritual activity in your family or throughout your life and there's something there that you feel and maybe you want to you just bring that to the Lord. You want to ask God for his power, his protection, his influence over any influence of uh, the blinding of the God of this age, and so to speak, in your life. I'm down with that. I think that's okay. Um, let, me, let me pray a prayer before we do that. And then we'll, we'll spend a couple minutes doing that before we move on. Lord, I, I just pray right now. We come before you as a church and we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit in this place. We pray for protection from on high. Lord, we want to come against any work of the enemy and bind any work of the demonic, evil spirits in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I, I pray, God, that if there is any type of influence, any type of koinonia happening with the wrong spirits, with the wrong forces or influences, Lord, I want to pray, I pray that there would be a breaking of that in the name of Jesus this morning, Lord. And as we bring our hearts to you and anything like that, Lord, we pray that there would be a cleansing, there'd be the power of the cross and the empty tomb that is greater, that is greater and brings light and freedom and even a lightness into our hearts. So let's take a minute or two just to bring our hearts before the Lord right now.